In May 2020, in the first few months of the pandemic, Canadian Nicholas Andre G. Johnson broke new ground as Princeton's first black valedictorian. In over 274 years, no other black student had been recognized in this way by the institution. In this episode, we talked to Nicholas about that experience and what it meant for him to take on this honor and responsibility. Between recording the podcast and its release, Nicholas had a second opportunity to address his graduating class in June 2022, when Princeton did an in-person redo of their 2020 graduation ceremonies. Beyond this experience, we talk about Nicholas's observations on how organizations can create meaningful environments where Black professionals bring their authentic selves to work. Nicholas shares his passion for using technology and innovation to advance the creation of value in the world. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is a Canadian student who had the distinct honor of being Princeton University's first Black valedictorian. Nicholas Andre G. Johnson delivered his valedictory remarks in 2020. We'll talk to him about what it meant for him to receive this recognition. We'll hear how this distinction has impacted his life and explore what it means to be a groundbreaking Black leader. We'll dig into Nicholas's own priorities for the future and discuss how he sees the changing world of work improving the lives of all people. Nicholas, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you so much for welcoming me. Very excited to be with you today. Nicholas, what was your reaction when Princeton reached out to you to be a valedictorian in 2020? It was a moment of incredible excitement, joy, and pride. When Princeton first reached out to me, at that moment, the historical significance of the moment had not yet been confirmed. At that time, it was only just to notify me that I had been nominated and confirmed by the faculty to be the valedictorian for my class year. And being valedictorian was really not a personal goal of mine. It was not something that I set out to do from the moment I arrived at Princeton. The key North Star that drove a lot of the decisions I made during college was just this idea of continual learning, an idea of exploring my curiosity, and this idea of trying to become an expert in the fields that I took an interest in. That drive was something that was very much imparted on me by my parents, who always motivated me to have the confidence to pursue my interests to the greatest of my ability. I can't help but think to one of the experiences I had when I first arrived on Princeton's campus back in 2016. Growing up, I was a child who competed in a lot of math competitions. I regularly competed in provincial and national level math competitions, but that being said, I never actually represented Canada at what's called the International Math Olympiad, which is one of the premier international math competitions that high school students will participate in. And the reason I say this is because going into Princeton, I knew that I was a student with what I considered to be quite a strong math background, but I also knew that there were going to be not only students who had competed at the IMO at Princeton, but students who had placed and received medals at that math competition. I've had this mentality back in 2016 of, I'm not sure if I can be taking the same math classes as some of these other more gifted students than me. When I first got to campus, I met with the math placement officer and I showed her some of the work that I'd done previously. And not only did she encourage me to place out of the initial math classes that I was proposing, she actually encouraged me to begin taking the same math sequence as students that were trying to be math majors and students who had competed at this 
prestigious math competition. But that idea at that time to me was so foreign to me that I actually said no. And I said, no, I can't do this. And then fast forward two, three years, I ended up being a student who was pursuing the same coursework as a lot of these students who had competed at the IMO. And to kind of have that trajectory culminated in me being named valedictorian, I thought was one that was really meaningful to me. What's the experience been like being the first Black valedictorian? Any surprises from this experience? The first surprise was the incredible amount of media interest that followed the announcement of this event. Princeton actually only confirmed to me in a live podcast recording that I was in fact the first Black valedictorian that they had ever had. We were recording and they kind of hit me with this major news and asked me what my raw reaction to it was. And I was really shocked in that moment because it was a question that had crossed my mind, but not one that I had spent any significant amount of time thinking of. After I learned this, of course, I shared this with my family. I shared this with my close friends. Everyone was so excited, so proud. One of my close friends actually tweeted about it. At this time, I had very little social media presence. I'd never made a tweet before. I didn't have a Twitter account. He tweeted about this unbeknownst to me. We went to bed one night. I woke up the next morning, seeing that he had called me like so many times saying that, oh, this tweet is really generating a lot of traction and a lot of people are trying to reach out to you. A lot of people want to talk to you now, people being people from the media. Being able to navigate that type of media interest for the first time in my life was a big challenge, especially during a period at the end of my undergraduate curriculum where I was in the process of completing all my final projects and completing many final exams. I ended up getting personal shout outs from some incredible people, which is absolutely insane. Justin Trudeau tweeted about me, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Oprah. I became a role model that many Black students, particularly Black students interested in STEM, began to look up to and began to reach out to for advice and for encouragement. I really had to embrace that role because with all of the attention that the moment generated, I did feel a strong sense of responsibility to pay it forward. Because there's no question that the path that I followed so far in my career and in my life has been facilitated by um, incredible role models and incredible mentors. My parents, my older sister, Anastasia, many of my teachers and professors throughout my education have been absolutely invaluable in helping me get to the point where I am today. Given the recognition and gratefulness I have for them, um, I feel a strong sense of responsibility to try to pay it forward as best as I can. Nicholas, I want to ask you something, because in listening to your remarks, I was a bit surprised that you didn't make reference to the historic role or address the unique challenges that face Black students as part of those remarks. Was it a deliberate choice to not talk about that? In short, yes, it was. I viewed my role, and I still view my role as valedictorian to, at least through my valedictory remarks, to congratulate my class and what my class has accomplished collectively, and perhaps most importantly to motivate my classmates to use their learnings to create meaningful value in the world. Given the time constraints of the brief address I was able to give, 
and the particular messaging that I chose to focus on, which was one of embracing the notion of building as the best way to create and deliver value to the world, I felt like drawing on the part of my Princeton experience that could best support that messaging, which I felt was a lot of the work that I did with the Princeton Engineers Without Borders chapter over the course of my time at the university. I spent a large part of my first two years at Princeton working on a sustainable engineering water project that we ended up constructing in the community of Pusunchas, Peru. So this is a community of roughly 120 families that previously didn't have access to clean drinking water. And in collaboration with other engineering students at the university, we both designed plans and implemented a water distribution system that now delivers water to all of those 120 families. And I felt like that story was both an important part of my Princeton experience and one that did an excellent job of supporting the messaging that I thought was best to deliver to my classmates. This platform that you were given, it is often used to draw attention to it. Draws to mind the differences between Canada and the U.S. and the way that the two countries approach race. You're a Canadian who was called on to have a historic U.S.-based opportunity. What are the differences that you see between how the United States and Canada approach race? I certainly believe that race and discourse about race, discussions about race relations are a lot more salient in the United States than they are in Canada. That was one of the first things that I noticed when I first arrived in the United States in late 2016. That was really the first time in my life where I spent a significant amount of my time engaging in conversations with Black people who identified solely as being African-American. And I think that that was a major learning of my first few months in the United States. I attribute that to one very different historical backgrounds of the two countries, but also, and perhaps equally significantly, to the fact that often Canadians tend to define many parts of our identity as it relates to the contrasting or equivalent identity in America. Many Canadians might say, oh, race relations in our country aren't anywhere near as bad as in the United States, which itself is not necessarily a true statement. And because of that, might believe that race, in fact, is not an issue in Canada, but that is very much not the case. Over the course of the past two years, in particular in the wake of George Floyd and the resulting racial reckoning around the world, there has been a strong, what I view to be an improvement in the way in which race is addressed, tackled, and discussed in Canada, in particular through work being done by organizations like the Black Wealth Club and organizations like the Black North Initiative. Another comment I will share about the differences in the approach to race that I see in the United States versus in Canada was very evident to me in the wake of the incredible media interest that the announcement of my being Princeton's first Black valedictorian generated. In particular, what I noticed is that virtually all U.S. media sources were interested in speaking with me solely in the context of my being Princeton's first Black valedictorian and 
would rarely ask me questions or would rarely ask for my thoughts about the actual topics that I studied in the actual field that I have developed my expertise in. And this was in contrast to many Canadian networks and Canadian media agencies that often presented a more holistic view of my person. That was something that didn't surprise me given the experience I had had in the US over the past four years, but was a very clear reinforcement of this idea of race being so central to a lot of the discourse that occurs in the United States. The comparison point between Canada and the US is often used to excuse a view of what Canada's racial issues are and some of the impacts that they continue to have. Conference Board has done research in this area for quite some time. We recently conducted a survey of over 9,000 Canadians to understand how Black professionals perceive the development, expression, and evaluation of social and emotional skills at work. And our work found that Black professionals' viewpoints are quite distinct. One of the things we found was that Black Canadians had the highest rate of feeling like they needed to adjust their identity to fit into a corporate setting. That was the highest rate of any other group. Nicholas, in your life and your experience, does that finding resonate with your experience, the need to change your identity to fit in and be successful? That finding certainly does resonate with my experience and my experiences in many workplace or workplace-related settings. The finding or the idea that the conference board explored in that research is fundamentally related to this idea of code switching. Let's say putting forward various parts of your identity in certain settings and changing which parts of your identity you emphasize depending on the setting. That is fundamentally linked to the idea of authenticity and what it means to be a person's authentic self. The way I think about authenticity is not that a person is only authentic or a person being authentic necessarily implies that they show up in every space in the same form. I think that a person can certainly show up in different spaces, emphasize different parts of their identity while still being authentic. In my experience, I'm very aware that in certain settings, for example, many professional settings that I've been in when I spent time working at Google, when I spent time working at the DE Shaw Group, when taking professional meetings at Princeton or at MIT, I'm very aware that it is in my interest to interact with people differently in those settings than I might interact with my friends in a more private setting. I'm very aware of the fact that I might choose to wear my hair differently in the aforementioned setting that I might choose to wear it when I'm just with some of my close friends in a less formal setting. That idea is one that I see expressed and mirrored in the behavior of many of my close friends who also share the same race identity as I do. I do believe there is a certain movement among certain Black professionals to increasingly blur the line between the versions of themselves that they bring to the workplace. Because there are individuals who find it very exhausting to do this code switch, let's say have to put forward a completely different foot in the workplace. At the end of the day, that is a very individual dependent phenomenon. Workplaces and corporations should be aware of this and should provide an environment that supports any employees who feel most comfortable displaying parts of their identity that might traditionally or historically not have been as welcome in the workplace.
when we think about how important it is for workplaces to create opportunities for people to be authentic and to use their social and emotional skills to drive success, to be innovative, to bring their whole selves to work. That's a big part of what workplaces are looking for. And if we have a portion of our population that struggles to do that, and it's an equity-seeking group, we have Black Canadian professionals who are reporting at a higher rate than any other that they're unable to do that. That's a barrier that corporations wouldn't want to see, but that is part of the reality of how people operate in it. It ties into this idea that equity-seeking groups are often called on to pave the path. You could say they're paving the path or alternately they have to carry the burden of breaking new ground or advancing diversity causes. But our research also shows that the same individuals find that when they bring themselves into work, they're perceived differently in an organizational setting, their social and emotional skills are perceived differently. And those perceptions might actually be limiting either the progress that can be made or the progress that they can bring in through these pieces. We've talked to several leaders in this space who say that rather than advancing careers, this, we'll call it a diversity burden or the responsibility to take on this, can actually hold folks back. I wonder if you've experienced this in your own life, and if so, what are the things that you think organizations can do to advance equity and diversity? The idea is obviously absolutely good without forcing the responsibility on our successful Black Canadian leaders to lead on the diversity as well as lead in the workplace itself. That is a topic that I view to be very important and one that is very dear to me. Thinking specifically about how these issues manifest themselves in the workplace, the way I view the idea that you've expressed is in the context of what I call a minority tax. The idea that within a workplace, striving to create a more equitable or diversity promoting environment, that workplace will often view it to be the responsibility of the minority employees that exist in that workplace to do the work that is required to create that more diverse environment. Yet, when it then comes to making promotion decisions or evaluating the output of an employee, employees are typically evaluated only on traditional metrics of accomplishment in the workplace that tend to not include any metrics that reward people who would have devoted some of their time to creating a more diverse environment. At the end of the day, minority employees, I'll speak specifically to Black employees, should absolutely be involved in creating a workplace environment that is more conducive to the thriving and the advancement of other Black employees. However, that responsibility shouldn't fall entirely on them and should very much be viewed as one that is held by all people that form part of the workplace. At the end of the day, nothing meaningful is achieved by yourself. And I think that for true progress to be made here, there needs to be a partnership between Black employees or minority employees, between allies, and between what I call co-conspirators. One story or reflection I can share about how this idea has manifested itself in my life a bit or in my career a bit more concretely would be as it relates to a talk I gave at the National Science Foundation, I believe last year during Black History Month, I was engaged to give a talk as part of their Black History Month celebration to share my story, but in particular to 
share advice or insights into how the NSF can better help promote the development of Black and minority graduate students and professors in STEM fields in particular. I, of course, had many thoughts on that idea, but also am by no means a spokesperson for Black students studying in STEM. So one of the first things I did was I reached out to other Black graduate students and Black faculty members I had in my network to ask them what their thoughts were on this issue. And I received a very binary response from everyone I contacted. On the one hand, there were people who were very willing to speak to me about this topic and to brainstorm potential solutions or potential advice that I could share that would be actionable. But on the other hand, I received several responses from individuals, many of these are friends of mine, who actually took issue with the fact that the NSF was indirectly through me asking them to take time out of their studies and take time out of their professorship to answer these questions that they thought weren't necessarily their responsibility to devote meaningful hours of theirs to fixing. But at the end of the day, meaningful partnerships are what need to be established here. And a culture of recognizing that the responsibility to create a more diverse work environment and a more equitable and supportive work environment is one that is held by all stakeholders at a corporation and not just by those stakeholders who are most directly affected by that issue. Nicholas, you've talked about race a lot, but you were selected and you talked about this when you were talking about your history and your experience at Princeton. You were selected as valedictorian because you were a student leader as well, and you were leading students, you were visionary in your own work. What are you passionate about right now as it comes to your life's work and moving that work forward itself? At my core, I consider myself to be a technologist and a builder. What I'm most passionate about is pushing the frontier of technological innovation in the world and doing so in a way that is able to improve the human condition, improve the quality of life uh, that most people are able to live during their lifetime. Currently, I'm a PhD student in operations research, which is the study of how to make good decisions with limited information under uncertainty using tools from mathematical optimization. This is the same topic that I studied at Princeton and the field that I'm continuing to develop an expertise in. And I really spend a lot of my time at MIT doing one of two things. On the one hand, I spend a lot of time developing new algorithms to solve the type of decision problems that I was alluding to. Um, and in particular, I focus on developing algorithms that are what's called interpretable. So by that, I mean algorithms that produce decisions that can readily be understood by humans that might not have the same type of technical training as the person who developed the algorithm. I try to develop algorithms that are what's called privacy preserving. So that means algorithms that respect any privacy related constraints of the data that they act on. So this is particularly important in settings like healthcare, where patient data is very sensitive information. I seek to ensure that the algorithms I develop are what's called equitable or fair. And by that, I mean algorithms that don't adversely impact any particular demographic group among the set of groups that they are supposedly developed to serve. And then on the flip side, I spend a lot of my time thinking about how these algorithms can be applied specifically 
in healthcare, education, and in finance. Beyond my work at MIT, I'm extremely passionate about entrepreneurship. A lot of the innovation that's currently happening in cryptocurrency, crypto assets, and in Web 3.0. I am currently working as a researcher in residence at Bain Capital Ventures' $560 million crypto fund, working to push the frontier of what's possible in a digital decentralized world. A lot of the innovations that are happening in that space are one of the things that really excite me. Your passions are definitely coming through, obviously, in what you're studying and how you build it. We had a guest on this program, Sinead Bovell, who was a technologist, and she talked about this idea that the old model where you would go to school and then you would work and then you would retire, she thinks is done that that is not going to be the experience for folks, that there's going to be a lot more back coming back in, needing to learn, needing to relearn. Curious to know what your thoughts on that question of what's coming in the world and where that might affect what we need to do in terms of thinking about the schools and how we prepare people for that future. That is a really important question because learning and skill development, I think is fundamental to how humans go about building in the world and creating value. I absolutely agree with this idea of the traditional process of going to school to learn, then working and then retiring, being a process that will you know, very soon no longer be the status quo. It might already not be the current status quo, in fact. One thing we're seeing in the world is that the innovation cycle, in particular, the technological innovation cycle, continues to shrink. The amount of time between subsequent major technological advances continues to grow shorter. A direct corollary of that is that the workforce of tomorrow and the workforce of five years from now will have to be skilled in a set of technologies and for a set of functions that might not even exist today or might not have any wide adoption yet today. That process of iteration, whether it is a five-year timeline, a seven-year timeline, or a 10-year timeline, will continue to shrink and will require that people who continue to operate in the workforce not have an aversion to picking up a textbook or completing an online course on their own time to keep up with whatever new technology or whatever new functions are being created in the world. One of the major learnings of the past two years is the fact that virtual work and virtual learning is possible. And not only is it possible, the frictions are a lot lesser than were initially anticipated when we first had to transition to a primarily virtual working and learning environment. The consequence of that is that fundamentally there will be a change in the modality of learning that is a move away from pure classroom-based learning to one where either one individuals are able to remotely join classrooms and engage in this remote learning, or two, are able to engage in more project-based or experiential learning that happens outside of a formal classroom setting or might happen outside of a formal large group setting. And that's certainly one form of learning that I've personally began to embrace in my own life. One of the benefits of having this platform that Princeton was able to bestow on you, or you earned to get yourself that opportunity, but the benefit is that you have this mentor role and you're a role model. 
for other students who talked about this, for other students that are coming up through the academic as well as the corporate landscape. What advice do you provide to people who hope to break new ground, who hope to use their skills and curiosity like you're doing to build a better world? There are two pieces of advice that I would share. So the first is one that my parents told me and reinforced in me during my childhood, just this idea of being motivated to find your passion. And once you do, having a commitment to pursue that to the greatest of your ability, regardless of any hurdles that you might have to face along the way. Really having a drive to develop an expertise and to become recognized as an expert in fields that you do have an interest in. The second piece of advice would be to talk about what you do and talk about what your interests are. If I reflect on some of the most exciting activities and endeavors that I'm pursuing in my own life right now, quite literally every single one of them sparked from some sort of collaboration being formed among a set of key partners. Had I not been willing to outwardly express my interest, outwardly express those issues that I'm most passionate about, a lot of these partnerships would never have formed just because I wouldn't know who to turn to and people who have similar interests wouldn't know that they could look to me as a potential build partner. In keeping with this idea of maintaining and building key partnerships is this idea of building and maintaining a strong community. I was forced off campus during March 2020 at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was during my last semester as an undergraduate student. One of the main learnings from that moment and from the subsequent several months was that you do have to be extremely deliberate in ensuring that you nurture and maintain key relationships in your life and key communities in your life. Because in college, it's very easy to take for granted the amount of time and the amount of access that you get to your friends and to your mentors, because at least at a residential college like Princeton, everyone lives on the same campus. You have a lot of immediate access to friends that might have very strong expertise on topics that you might be seeking to learn about or professors that might have incredible institutional knowledge in fields that you're trying to break into. But when my class was forced off campus, we very quickly learned that the type of community that we had fostered on campus was by no means a given in the world. It was something that you had to work very hard to maintain. Embracing that learning and really being able to develop a commitment to putting in the work and putting in the time to nurture those important relationships has been something that I've found incredibly valuable. At the end of the day, nothing worth doing in the world is ever done alone. And partnerships are fundamentally the currency that drives the most impactful projects that occur in the world. Nicholas, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And I'm sure we will continue to hear about your success as you go on. But thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you again for having me on the podcast. It's been a true pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Bright Future from the Conference Board of Canada. If you like what you hear, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the Conference Board's opinion or research. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, research, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.